أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد محمد After Abu Talib passes away and Lady Khadija alayhi salam passes away the difficulties for the Prophet and the Muslims intensify now the Prophet has lost his guardian his supporter, the one who would be his social support in that society. The Prophet now loses that supporter. And the Prophet knew that it was a matter of time before the Meccans would attempt to assassinate him and kill every remaining Muslim. And there were signs that Quraysh now was working on a scheme to uproot the religion of Islam. The Prophet realized that it was no longer safe to stay in Mecca. Muslims were being more and more persecuted. The chances of them assassinating the Prophet were growing. And so the Prophet had to make a next move. So the next move was to temporarily migrate somewhere. The Prophet was inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to temporarily go to Ta'if, the city of Ta'if. Now it wasn't really a migration because the duration of it was very short as we shall see. Some historical accounts say the Prophet stayed only 10 days there while some state he stayed 30 days there. So it was maximum um, one month that the Prophet stayed in Ta'if. But it was considered an attempt to migrate out of Mecca to find another city that could potentially host the Prophet So it was in that 10th year after the Ba'tha, in the month of Shawwal, which is the month that comes after the month of Ramadan, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives permission to the Prophet to go to Ta'if. Now where is Ta'if exactly? The city of Ta'if is a city about 100 kilometers, so about 60 miles, southeast of Mecca. It was inhabited mainly by the tribe of Bani Thaqif. They were the primary inhabitants of this town. It's an elevated city, so the elevation of the city is about 6,000 feet. And so its climate, its weather, it's much cooler than Mecca. Mecca is very hot. On your average summer day, the temperature in Mecca can soar to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, but not in Ta'if. Ta'if is considerably cooler because of that higher elevation. It rains more in Ta'if, so they had good agriculture there. You would see a lot of greenery in the city of Ta'if. You know, today it's the unofficial summer um, capital of Arabia. Those who are escaping the heat from Arabia, they would go to the city of Ta'if. It has many resorts today. It's like a vacation spot that people would go to, yes. Now Ta'if was also of religious significance at the time to the Arabs. Why? Because it housed one of the three main idols. What were the three main idols that the Arabs worshipped? Lat. Manat and Uzza. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states in the Holy Quran in Surah Al-Najm, 
أفرأيتم اللات والعزة ومنات الثالثة الأخرى These were the three idols. The Arabs believed these idols were the daughters of God. So they would worship them. Now the idol Lat was in Ta'if. Remember they weren't all in Mecca. Some of them were in Mecca. Al-Lat was in Ta'if. They actually had a house of worship dedicated for this idol. The Arabs would go there, they would sacrifice sheep and offer it to this idol. There were some pilgrims who would come to visit the shrine of this idol. And the people of Ta'if sometimes would even compete with Mecca that had the Kaaba and the idols there. So historically it had great religious significance over there. You know, one of their crazy beliefs was that when it would get too hot in the summer, they believed God would actually go to Ta'if by his daughter Lat and you know, to escape the summer heat. They had some of these fancy beliefs. So the Prophet decides to go to Ta'if. He leaves Mecca, he goes to Ta'if. Who does he go with? Some historical accounts state Imam Ali was with him, while some other historical accounts tell us that Zayd ibn Haritha, you know, the adopted son of the Prophet, he went with the Prophet. It is possible that maybe both of them went. But we do have accounts that state Imam Ali accompanied the Prophet on this very important trip. So the Prophet goes to Ta'if, he visits every noble man, every tribal leader there, discussing with them the religion of Islam, the path of God. However, they all unanimously reject the Prophet Now they realize that the youth who were good-hearted, pure-hearted, innocent, were being attracted to the message of the Prophet. So they give the Prophet an ultimatum. They told him, look, leave our town. You're not welcome here, leave. Because our youth will start following you and we don't want that happening. So we're giving you advice, leave. Now the Prophet is still trying to preach the message of Islam over there. What they do is they form two lines and as the Prophet is passing, they stone the Prophet, they hurl stones at him. The feet of the Prophet start bleeding. Imam Ali or Zayd, if he was with the Prophet, his head is now fractured because of the stones. He's wounded and the blood is now flowing because he's trying to defend the Prophet taking the stones so that they don't hit the Prophet. Now the Imam, the, the Prophet wanted to seek refuge. They're now chasing him with st stones and he's running away from them to secure his life, to seek refuge. When he reaches a garden or a farmland, it was a beautiful piece of garden owned by Utbah and Shayba, the sons of Rabi'ah. They were Meccan elites. They had a farm in Ta'if, around the city of Ta'if. The Prophet goes, he reaches that garden. So the Prophet is now resting, you know, breathing, taking a breath when he reaches this area. Ibn Hisham in his Sira book, he narrates when the Prophet reached this place and he was now safe from the aggressors, he raised his hand in dua and he made the following dua. Imagine the Prophet, 
He had to leave his hometown of Mecca. He comes to a new city, not a single person believes in him. They hurl stones at him. The Prophet says, Allahumma ilayka ashku da'fa quwwati. Oh Allah, I complain to you. I'm telling you about the weakness of my strength. Look at the people, how light they've taken me. Ya Arhamar Rahameen, Anta Rabbul Mustabafeen. Oh, the one who has the greatest mercy. You are the Lord of those who are deemed weak, those who are oppressed. Wa Anta Rabbi, you're my Lord. Ilamantakiluni. Oh Allah, who are you submitting me to? Ila ba'idin yatajahamuni. To strangers who will be so rough with me. Or enemies who now will overpower me. But then the Prophet, after saying this, he says, But oh Allah, I'm concerned about one thing. It's okay, I'll experience all this difficulty for your sake. Oh Allah, if you're not angry with me, if you're not upset with me, then I don't care. Let them do whatever they want. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in the light of your face. Now he's saying this symbolically, of course, that has given light to even the darkness. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in your light, so you protect me from doing anything that angers you. Look at the faith of the Prophet. He's doing exactly what God wants him to do. He's being harassed, he's almost killed, yet he says, Oh Allah, my only concern is not to disappoint you. This is the Rahmah of the Prophet, this is the Iman of the Prophet Oh Allah, I will keep begging you and knocking at your door until you are pleased with me. The Prophet makes this dua. Now the owners of this farmland, you know, those two pagans, they see the Prophet in that state and in the end the Prophet was from their hometown, from Mecca. It seems they feel bad for the Prophet. So they had a servant by the name of Adas. They tell him, go and take some grapes to the Prophet so he can eat. So Adas, he takes some grapes he offers it to the Prophet. The Prophet takes a few of those grapes. Before eating, he says, Bismillah, I eat in the name of Allah. Adas was shocked. He tells the Prophet, not knowing who the Prophet is, this is the first time I hear someone in this area mentioning the name of God before he eats something. Who are you? How come you're saying this? The Prophet asks him, who are you? You introduce yourself. He tells him, I am Adas, I am originally from Babel, from Babylon, uh, from Nainawa, sorry, north of Babylon. I am from Nainawa in modern day Iraq and I am a Christian. I'm not a pagan, I'm a Christian. And I heard you saying in the name of God, who are you? When the Prophet heard that he's from Nainawa, he told him, oh, so you're from the village of, of Yunus ibn Matta, Prophet Yunus alayhi salam, Jonas, 
He tells him, and how do you know Jonas? Who's told you about Jonas and he's from that village? He tells him, because Jonas, Yunus ibn Metta is my brother. He was a prophet and I am a prophet. When Adas realizes that, he falls at the feet of the prophet, kissing him and he says, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna ka rasulullah. You are the messenger of God and the prophet introduces himself to him. Now when he becomes Muslim, Adas, his owners, the pagans who owned him, right? The sons of Rabi'ah, they get shocked. One of them tells his brother, see, he's even corrupted our servant. He's uh, put some spell on him. He gave, he went, he talked to him for a few minutes and he became a Muslim. And that really disturbed them. Now this story of Adas embracing the religion of Islam, one of our scholars has raised objections to this story. He says, I find this story problematic for a number of reasons. Let's examine those reasons and see what our perspective is. His first objection is that the Prophet would not accept gifts from pagans. Why? Because he did not want them to have a favor on him. The Prophet did not want any unbeliever to have a favor on him, so he would not accept their gifts. And over here we see these two pagans sending grapes to the Prophet and he consumed those grapes. And this does not fit with the method of the Prophet in not accepting their gifts. One way of responding to that, to this objection, is that it's not very clear that they owned the grapes. Maybe Adas, the Christian believer, he owned those grapes and he gave them to the Prophet. Yes, they just gave him permission because you shouldn't do something like that without the permission of your masters. So it is likely and, and highly probable that it, he owned the dates and he gave them to the Prophet and Adas was a believer, he was a Christian. So the Prophet would accept, you know, gifts from someone like him, someone who is a believer. That's one way of addressing this objection. The second objection that this scholar has raised, he says that when the Prophet left Ta'if, he was saddened and he said to someone who was with him, probably Imam Ali salam or the other person who was with him, he said that I am leaving a village in which not a single person became Muslim. While this statement of the Prophet contradicts the story of Adas, Adas becoming a Muslim, because Adas did become a Muslim, whereas the Prophet is saying not a single person embraced Islam. So this tells us the story is problematic, maybe fabricated. The response to that I think is, first of all, the Prophet when he's saying that, he's referring to the people of Ta'if. And Adas was not one of the people of Ta'if. He told the Prophet, I'm from Nainawah, I'm from a different place, I've just temporarily come here. And somehow he became a slave for these people. So when the Prophet says no one believed in me, he means the Arabs, the people of Ta'if, not this Christian person. So if we take that into consideration, you know, we don't see, I don't see a fundamental problem in the story. Another objection the scholar has raised is that this story happened 10 years after the Prophet received revelation. We're in year 10 after the Ba'tha. When every Arab village had already heard about the Prophet 
and his religion. So for Adas to be shocked when he heard the Prophet mentioning the name of God, was it his first time hearing anybody mentioning the name of God? Why? I'm sure there were some Muslims he had seen, he had heard about this Prophet preaching this religion, so why was he shocked acting as if he has not heard that a Prophet exists at that time or someone is claiming to be a Prophet? So he's like, this is kind of problematic. We can address this objection by saying that although the Prophet, he was generally known to have claimed this message, but remember, the anti-Islamic propaganda machine was so powerful at the time that yes, a servant, a slave like Adas, how would he know that there is a Prophet who's teaching these beautiful teachings about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Those pagans, they had given the image to people that there's a sorcerer in Mecca, there's a liar in Mecca. So it's possible that Adas was not aware of this. Yes, maybe it's not that likely, but it's possible when you examine the media at the time and what it did to the Prophet. Now the reason why you would, you would be wondering, why is this scholar trying to refute the story? This is the fundamental point why. And my analysis is, let's not accept this part, but the story itself seems plausible and, and probable. The problem is, we have stories in Sunni sources that state when the Prophet received revelation, remember how some books depicted him not knowing whether this was Jibra'il, a devil is now trying to suffocate him, remember that whole controversy? Well, when the Prophet was so confused and he comes to Khadija shaking, and he's having these convolutions, right? He's, he's so scared. Khadija tells him, you're a good person. You know, you give charity. Why? I don't see why God would allow a demon to do that to you. So what does she do? She goes to Waraka ibn Nawfal, if you remember, her cousin, and she asks him about the Prophet and he tells her, no, 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 no. This is definitely an angel giving him revelation. Then, she goes to the Prophet and she comforts him and tells him, look, Waraka bin Nawfal, he's wise, he's got the knowledge of previous books and he's confirming that this is Jibra'il, this is an angel. Then the Prophet is relieved, okay, now I know it's an angel, you know, he needs Waraka to confirm it to him. Who else does she supposedly go to? Adas. They mention him 10 years before, at the beginning of the Wahi revelation, Supposedly Lady Khadija goes to Adas, the same guy, same, the same servant and slave. She tells him about what the Prophet is experiencing. She tells him, look, I know you know the knowledge of the Torah and the Injil, the Bible. So tell me, what do you think? He says, look, I'll write a dua for you. If he's insane, he'll be healed. And if he's not insane and he's telling the truth, it's not going to harm him. So she takes a dua from Adas and she gives it to the Prophet and supposedly it helps. So this scholar has a problem with this aspect of these stories. You know, these claims that the Prophet needed some Christians or some people of the book to really calm him down. And he had no clue this is Jibra'il. And he wanted to commit suicide. Yes. Who's raising these objections about the story? No, it's a Shia scholar. It's a respected Shia scholar. He's like, I'm j I just have a problem with the story of Adas. But my analysis is this last part, yes, we reject. As we examined before, the Prophet doesn't need anyone to confirm to him that he's a Prophet. 
Allah will make that known to him. And we reject all these fabrications that Jibreel tried to suffocate him and he wanted to commit suicide and he thought a demon was trying to kill him. We reject all of that. And maybe to make these um, stories more credible, they inserted the name of Adas, right? Because he was known to be wise and have some knowledge of the book. Otherwise, with this exception, I don't see any problem in accepting you know, what Ibn Hisham and others have narrated, that when the Prophet went to Ta'if, this incident happened with Adas. So now the Prophet gives up on the people of Ta'if, they literally kick him out and they start chasing him with stones, so he had no choice but to leave the people of Ta'if after about 10 or 30 days, so maximum he spent only 30 days in the city of Ta'if. Now by the way, one reason why Ta'if vehemently rejected the Prophet was a political and economic reason. Ta'if had strong economic ties with Mecca because Mecca did not have vegetation, um, fruits, crops. Where would they import their fruits and crops from? One of the cities was Ta'if. So if the people of Ta'if would have accepted the message of the Prophet, the Meccans would have immediately done what? Boycotted them. And that would have disrupted their economy. That's why the elders of Ta'if don't even try to engage in dialogue with the Prophet to see if he's really truthful or not. They knew he was telling the truth. They told him, look, we're not interested. We have a social economic system. It's going to disrupt it if we believe in you. So just leave us. So this is one reason why they really rejected the Prophet because Ta'if in the end at the time it was a small town and they were heavily dependent on Mecca. So they, didn't, they did not want to risk jeopardizing their relationship with, uh, with Mecca. Now here's an important question. Was the journey to Ta'if a failure? Pointless? Why would God have the Prophet go to Ta'if when he couldn't even stay there 10 days? What's the point of the Prophet going there? When Allah knows that it's not going to work out. Yes? I mean, like, isn't it just to give them the message? Like, like a warner, just as a warner. So that's one of the reasons. Four primary reasons why the Prophet went to Ta'if, even though he knew their reaction. Number one, the Meccans had propagated that the Prophet is a sorcerer, magician. He casts spells on people. Now when you are dealing with accusations like that, it is your rational moral obligation to go and make yourself visible to the people to dispel these misconceptions. See some people, we see that in our society today, when people start accusing them, what do they do? They retreat back, they isolate themselves, they don't want to see anyone. Islamically this is wrong. When people are brainwashed, and another image of you has been presented to the people. Go out there in society, show your real personality. Eventually people will realize that what has been told about you are, is, is false. It's just allegations and fabrications. So the Prophet wanted the people of Ta'if to see him firsthand, to realize that the Meccans are lying because maybe some people really had doubts. When the people of Ta'if saw the Prophet, they knew in their hearts, now, this was a true messenger. They saw him speak, they heard his message. And so the Prophet is actually 
showing us that when people do that to you, don't isolate yourself, make yourself lonely and not meet anyone. That's not a healthy thing to do because it, it might even reaffirm some of the misconceptions in the minds of people. You'll end up being depressed and you'll lose your cause. Go out there, don't be afraid. If you know the allegations to be false, be courageous, go and show yourself. Eventually the truth will prevail. So that's one lesson the Prophet was demonstrating. The second very important lesson, the Prophet is teaching us, look when you work on a project, whatever it is, whether it's for Islam, big grand global project, whether it's a small project, whether it's a business project you have for Allah and Ahl bayt whatever it is, there will be times when you will try something, it's not going to work. You'll reach a dead end, don't give up. I went to Ta'if, it didn't work out for me, but I didn't stop, I didn't give up. Then I tried Medina, it worked out for me. So the Prophet is practically teaching us that this is the natural cycle of life. You will end up doing things that are not going to work out for you. What happens to most people, they get demoralized. See, if the Prophet did not have that spirit from God, after Ta'if, he would have given up. Okay, what's the point? I tried going to another village, not a single person believed in me. Forget it. The Prophet is teaching you, no. I went to Ta'if, I got stoned, nobody cared about me. I had to go back to Mecca, I didn't give up. Then Allah opened it for me, I went to Medina and everything changed. So the first migration, okay it was a failure, but there, there's a lesson in it, don't give up. There is another pathway. So the Prophet is actually practically demonstrating to us, don't think that the path of God or the path of life in general, you know there's a red carpet um, for you over there, no. There will be thorns on the way. You have to make adjustments, recalculations. You have to keep trying until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you victory. And this was really a powerful lesson for the later Muslims who came and they saw how Allah really elevated the Prophet in Medina. They're like, wow, who would, have foresee, who would have seen that before when the Prophet was in Ta'if? Who would have foreseen that? No one. So this was a beautiful attempt, you know, uh, by the Prophet by the instruction of God of course, to show us this wonderful lesson. And the Prophet is also teaching us, look, don't look at instant results. If you're obsessed with instant gratification, you know, today we have the culture of what? Instant gratification. Especially with our technology, we want things instantly, at the touch of my button. And the problem is our kids are growing up with this culture, that's why the new generation is really impatient. You know, you want things instantly. If that Amazon Prime shipping does not arrive in two days, you're agitated. Okay, what's the big deal? Maybe there was a weather delay. The world is not upside down, it's okay. See, we want things instantly. And now, by the way, speaking of Amazon, they're working on these drones that can actually... Um, you know, deliver, yeah, deliver the package the same day to you. Look at the impatience of the human being. Are you going to die if you don't get that package today or tomorrow? Are you going to die? <laughs> Believe me, no one will order a first aid kit that way. So impatience, the Prophet is teaching you, look, have patience. If you want to be obsessed with instant results, then I failed. I, as your messenger, failed. 
look at long-term results. So initially, there were no tangible results in Ta'if. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened the path. So there are beautiful lessons that the Prophet was demonstrating to us in his journey to Ta'if. And so it's wrong because some have accused the Prophet, you know, some maybe Orientalists, some historians, when they look at the Prophet's journey to Ta'if, like, oh, this was a failure. What a bad idea the Prophet came up with. No, it was by the instruction of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet goes back from Ta'if and he tells Imam Ali alayhi salam, it's okay, let's have patience. In the end, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give us victory if he wants. Now something interesting happens as the Prophet is going back from Ta'if. As the Prophet is going back from Ta'if, he passes by a valley called the Valley of the Jinn. As he's passing by that valley, the Prophet stays in that valley because it was a long way to Mecca. You know, you couldn't get to Mecca in one, in one day. It, it took a few days to get to Mecca. So the Prophet is passing by that valley. He sleeps in that valley. In the morning, by dawn, the Prophet is now praying to Allah and he recites verses of the Qur'an. Now in that valley there were jinn who inhabited that valley or they were passing by that valley. They hear someone reading something captivating. So they come close to the Prophet, they're hearing the Qur'an and it seems that they have a conversation with the Prophet So they hear the Holy Qur'an they're shocked at the beauty of this book. We've never heard anything like it. So they go back to their people of the jinn and they tell them what happened. We met this messenger, he was reading the Qur'an and many of them believed in the Qur'an. After this incident, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals which surah in the Qur'an? Surah al-Jinn. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. قُلْ أُوحِيَ إِلَيَّ أَنَّهُ اسْتَمَعَ نَفَرٌ مِّنَ الْجِنِّ فَقَالُوا إِنَّا سَمِعْنَا Say it has been revealed to me that a group of the jinn heard the Qur'an and they say this is a wondrous Qur'an. It guides to goodness and so we believed in it and we shall never commit shirk. So even the jinn would be pagans and they would be worshipping the idols. Once they heard the Qur'an, many of them believed in the Holy Qur'an. So now what's the real story behind this incident? We have, you know, historical accounts, some of them, for example, narrated by Ibn Abbas. He states that when the jinn heard this Qur'an, something happened in the heavens, in the skies. Before the advent of Islam and the Holy Qur'an, the jinn would normally go to a place in the heavens, not in the paradise, when I say heavens meaning in the higher skies. The angels usually hold meetings in that heaven, in that sky. You know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commissioned the angels to run the affairs of the universe, right? So they discuss important things about this universe and about the future of the world. The jinns and they were you know, spearheaded by Iblis. Iblis, the devil, is a jinni. 
along with his aides, they would go and eavesdrop on the angels. The Quran mentions this. They would go and they would hear the conversations of the angels and they would take sensitive information from them about future worldly events. So now they had some knowledge of the future because they heard, they listened on the angels. They would come back down to the earth and there were evil people called Kahana. Kahin in Arabic. Kahin in Arabic has two meanings. One of them is a reverend, a priest. The other meaning of a Kahin is a soothsayer. Soothsayers, you know, how did they have knowledge of the future? Because sometimes they didn't get it right. Through the jinn. The jinn would make contact with them. They would share with them some of that information. And then the soothsayers would go and say that to people. And that gave them a very important status. People are like, wow, these guys know the knowledge of the future. Interesting. And historically, soothsayers had a high position in society. Now they were false prophets. Sometimes they would even claim to be prophets. Even Roman emperors, they would consult them in matters of their government, when they wanted to make decisions, to anticipate the future they would actually consult these soothsayers to see what happens and sometimes you know they would get it right. By the way speaking of the Roman emperors, you know it has been documented in history that once a seer, one of those soothsayers, uh, told Julius Caesar, beware the Ides of March. Which day is the Ides of March? On the, middle. the middle, which is the 15th, which subhanAllah was today. And today was also the birthday of another Sayyid. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. So this soothsayer says, beware the Ides of March. So Caesar is kind of concerned what's going to happen today. So he meets this soothsayer somewhere, the seer, and apparently nothing had happened that day. He told him, look, what you said was nonsense. I'm still alive and nothing has happened. He told him, Emperor, the day is not over yet. Minutes later, he was stabbed 23 times and he got killed. The Ides of March. So there were soothsayers who would give some information like that. Sometimes they would get it right, yes. Because the jinn would basically steal that information from the angels and they would tell the people. This existed. Now why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow the angels, allow the jinn to... Why didn't he block them? Why did he allow them to eavesdrop on the angels? To test the humans. See the soothsayers were tools that Allah actually tested your belief. Do you believe or no? Because if you have a belief system and then a soothsayer who does not believe in any prophet, who's probably even worshiping an idol, he comes and he gives you some knowledge of the future. If you're not a firm believer, you're shaken. Oh, maybe his religion is right. Maybe I should worship the idols because the, soothsay the soothsayers would say, worship idols, do this, and you will get the knowledge that I have. See, they would misguide the people. And that was really a, a big challenge for humanity. Now the prophets of God through miracles would clarify the path of God, but those whose hearts were weak, this was a big challenge for them. Now what happens with the prophet when Allah sends the Prophet suddenly the jinn, as they're eavesdropping on the angels, 
they see that they're being struck with meteors, as the Quran says. Fireballs coming at them, removing them from that place. So the jinn would say in Surah Al-Jinn, if you read it, we used to sit and eavesdrop on the angels and then suddenly we see the skies are safeguarded. Muni'at harasan shadidan. And fireballs would be aimed at us. So from that day, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prevented the jinn from eavesdropping on the angels and getting the knowledge of the future or sensitive information. Why? The barakah of Rasulullah because he's rahmah for the worlds. So this test stopped. Allah no longer tested humanity that way. Is that why we don't have seers anymore? We don't have seers anymore, yes. Have you ever wondered why? What, what happened to them? Because remember, they would really tell the truth sometimes. Pro uh, Prophet Musa السلام, the seers, what did they tell Fir'aun? A boy has been born who's going to end your kingdom. He got scared. He actually killed every male baby from Bani Israel. He would slash the stomachs of pregnant women to kill the baby. Because he knew this is not a joke. When a seer is telling you, and not one of them, all of them told him that. Well, how did they get that information? From the jinn who would listen from the angels. The angels were talking about Prophet Musa and they said, oh, Musa has been born and he's going to be the, the, the cause of the destruction of the Pharaoh. Well, the jinn would tell the people, these seers, and the seers would tell the emperors or the uh, kings or the pharaohs, yes. So is this about the jinn, were they like, Programmed to do this sort of thing, or is that like free will? No, the jinn are just like the human beings in terms of free will. They're tested by Allah. See, the Quran, if you read Surah Al Jinn, it tells you the jinn are saying, We're just like people. We have good jinns, we have bad jinns, there are believing jinns, there are disbelieving jinns, so they're not programmed. It's out of their, you know, evil choice that they become shayateen. By the way, who's a shaitan? A bad jinn. An evil jinn, we call him shaitan. So they have to pray too and fast? Yes, they have to pray. They have, we don't know now exactly how they pray because they don't have a physical body that we do, but yes, they have obligations. They have to pray, they have to fast, they have to believe in the Quran, believe in the Prophet So they have similar obligations. So that means that when Muhammad was talking to them or reciting the Quran and he had a dialogue with them, was he able to see them? So the ahadith are not clear. One hadith states he, was not, he would not see them physically. He would just hear their voices. But it's possible for the Prophet to see them. So but the people that you know, always come out and say, you, you spoke to a jinn or saw, that's not true, right? So with the issue of the jinn, right, the, the issue with the jinn, while we cannot rule out contact with the jinn, but it was highly minimized after the Prophet. So before the Prophet, there was a lot of contact between humans and jinn. But after the advent of Islam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, minimized their contact or even sometimes completely blocked their contact. So it's possible for some people to be in, in touch with jinns, but it's very unlikely. My analysis is many people, the average person who claims to have heard a jinn, see a jinn, it's, it's just their imagination, let's say. Sometimes where you're in a certain psychological state, you actually start hearing things and seeing things, right? It's not necessarily to the point of hallucination, 
but it's a type of it. So I would probably discredit many of these claims. Nonetheless, it's possible. There have been some correct accounts of people, even in our modern era, who've had contact with the jinn. But it's very rare and isolated. But before the Prophet ﷺ, it was very common. Yes? Uh, are we still superior to the jinn, or are we at the same level as them? So the human being is potentially superior than the jinn, yes. The intellectual capacity Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to the human being and it's fully embodied in the ma'sumin of course is higher than the capacity of the jinn. So they are tested like we are tested but because they don't have our physical desires and bodies they're tested differently. So their salah fasting would be a different form than our salah and fasting. But just like us Allah has given them an intellect they can choose right or wrong. Yes. Yes, we do have authentic hadiths, the Imams, because they are universal leaders, they had contact with the jinn. There's a famous story of the jinn walking in the form of a python in the um, Masjid al-Kufa, the mosque of Ali ibn Abi Talib salam, and it spoke to the Imam salam. This has been documented in history. That's why if you've gone to Masjid al-Kufa, there is a door called what? Bab? Anyone? Bab, yeah, what's Python in Arabic? Thu'ban. Have you passed through Bab al-Thu'ban? That's the gate where the jinn in the form of a python entered the mosque and spoke to Imam Ali No, 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 of course it's not the original door, but it's the place of it. Yeah, same area. Wait, so was that just the vessel that the jinn came from or is this something that they're able to do? As in like so the jinn sometimes they can take physical forms, they do have that capacity within certain conditions of course and sometimes the shaitan. We have uh, in our hadiths in history of the prophets and even in the history of Ahlul Bayt sometimes shaitan, the devil would take on some human forms and some other forms. Mm -hmm. Yes? Jinns can't come in human forms today can they? So generally speaking no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala banned them generally speaking from taking human form. Were they banned to another like, place? No, they're still here on earth. They're on planet earth. Some ahadith indicate they live in the lower layers of the earth. So they go, you know, like under the ground. Hadith state that. That's why it's, you know, good not to sleep in a basement or in a deep basement, for example. <laughs> deep basement. We're not talking about, you know, these normal basements. We also have hadiths that they live on the banks of rivers and oceans and maybe that's why you see a lot of corruption on the beach. <laughs> so there are a hadith that say the jinns they usually frequent those areas, banks of rivers and seas and also lower levels of the ground. They leave areas that are populated? I don't know. I'm not sure about that. It's possible. We have to see proof from hadith to see if that's possible. Possibly. Possibly. They moved out. Yeah. It's possible. Like I said, I don't think we have evidence for this from hadith, but it may be possible. What I 
what I remember from the hadith is these areas that we mentioned. Yeah, what she's saying I heard Yeah. <laughs> it's possible, maybe, but but we don't know. Yeah. We don't know exactly for sure. Yes. How can we respond to these uh, to the Sunni claims that the jinn can possess a uh, human body and that they even, <coughs> there's some Sunni sheikhs that perform exorcism? They say there's videos of that. Like people actually possessed and the sheikh comes and he performs this exorcism and that person who's supposedly possessed by a jinn starts speaking in a deeper voice or starts acting crazy completely. How can we respond to that? No, the Quran is very clear when it's talking about the devil and his influence on people, that he does not have control over people. He just invites you to corruption and, and you follow his path. So that level of control where you lose your free will, that's unlikely because even the devil, who's the strongest jinn, right? He has an army, he cannot do that to a person to the point where you no longer have free will. Yes, maybe sometimes some people they either mess with the jinn, because there are ways to mess with the jinn, and it's prohibited to do that. Or it could be some type of spell that induces harm on you. It could alter your psychological state, but it's not technically being possessed by a jinn. Maybe it's just, you know, you have physical harm, you also have psychological harm. We could see it as a type of psychological harm. So anyways, going back to the issue that happened or the incident that happened with the Prophet, suddenly the jinn, they realize that they're being struck with these fireballs, with meteors, and so they realize what happened? How come we no longer can eavesdrop on the angels? So they decide let's go down to earth and see if something significant happened on earth. So when they come down to earth, um, there are two versions of this account. The first version states they heard that Allah has sent Prophet Muhammad with the Qur'an and as a result of that they've been banned from eavesdropping on the angels. Another account is this, which they come down to earth and a group of jinn tell them, look, we heard Qur'an from the Prophet and we have believed in it. And as a result Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has banned them. So this is an incident that happened in the 10th year after the Ba'thah as the Prophet was going back from Ta'if to Mecca. He passes by Wadi al-Jinn, the Valley of Jinn, and this story happens and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals Surah al-Jinn. وَصَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَى مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلِهِ الطَّاهِرِينَ